Thank you all for joining us. My name is David Halperin. I'm the executive director of Israel Policy Forum. I want to thank you all for joining on incredibly short notice uh, for us, uh, for this webinar today, uh, where we will discuss the rather dramatic development of the announcement of uh, the intention to normalize relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates in exchange for a suspension of plans to advance West Bank annexation. Uh, for those of you who are joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time, I want to welcome you. Uh, Israel Policy Forum is committed to advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to ensure Israel's security and well-being and its future as a Jewish and democratic state. Uh, in furtherance of this core mission, we have been raising the alarm about threats uh, posed by West Bank annexation. We've been raising the alarm about the issue of West Bank annexation for the past three years. We've been educating American policymakers in Washington, Jewish communal leaders throughout the country, and emerging leaders uh, of the next generation. And of course, the issue of West Bank annexation uh, is critical to the announcement today. Um, it appears um, that that the issue of annexation is to be suspended, but there are a lot of question marks, including uh, recent statements just in the last uh, hour or so uh, from Prime Minister Netanyahu about annexation and about what all this means. There are many, many questions still to come. Uh, in what otherwise is a rather historic day, we have issued a statement, which you can now find on the, on the website and you should have seen in this email uh, announcement for this call in which we welcome this development, uh, encourage uh, these ties to be advanced alongside our firm belief that this only demonstrates uh, how dangerous annexation <laughs> um, to the advancement of Israel-Arab ties and, of course, to a, a prospective two-state solution that ensures Israel's future as a secure Jewish and democratic state. We are fortunate to have uh, incredibly knowledgeable members of our team with us for today's conversation. I want to encourage um, uh, everyone online today, if you have a question to do so, um, our colleagues will instruct you how to go about asking that question as we begin the call. Uh, with us today uh, is Michael Koplow, uh, Israel Policy Forum's policy director and, of course, the author of our weekly Koplow column, providing nuanced commentary and analysis each and every week. And with us as well is Shira Efron, a policy advisor for Israel Policy Forum, uh, who has long uh, worked uh, on issues around Israel, its relationship uh, with the Palestinians, with the Gulf, with China, and a variety of uh, research issues uh, in her roles at the RAND Corporation and at the INSS, Israel's Institute for National Security Studies. She comes to us uh, uh, from the Tel Aviv area. To moderate this conversation, I will turn it over to my colleague, Evan Gottesman, uh, co-host of uh, the Israel Policy Pod, our weekly podcast. Uh, if you miss any part of today's webinar, we will replay this discussion on that podcast, which you can access um, wherever you get your podcasts at Israel Policy Pod. Uh, Evan, I will turn it over to you, and thank you all once again for joining us for this very timely conversation. Evan, off to you. Thank you, David, and thank you all for joining today. So before we jump into this important and timely conversation, just a few logistical reminders about how you can participate in this webinar. We do encourage questions from the audience, which we'll try to get to in the latter half of this program. If you want to ask a question, you can type it into the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen or use the chat function. Just remind everyone to keep the chat function civil 
and nice over there, even as we discuss these hot topics. And now with that, uh, we can jump into it. So this question is, is for both of you, Michael and Shira. Uh, what are your general takeaways from this development? There was a joint statement issued by the UAE, Israel, and the United States. What does all of this mean? Shira, do you want to start? Sure. Um, thank you, Evan, and thank you all for joining us. Um, I think uh, there are more questions at this point than answers, but I think it's really interesting that so quickly we're seeing that each side uh, frames this very uh, differently. Uh, the White House statement that you just mentioned, which Israel, which was joined by Israel and the United Arab Emirates, uh, said uh, full normalization in return for Israel suspending the plans to declare sovereignty. That's the language that they used. Um, Mohammed bin Zayed from the United Arab Emirates wrote on Twitter immediately after that they, the two sides agreed on preparing a roadmap for beginning cooperation to reach mutual ties and normalization. In Israel, Netanyahu reported full historical peace agreement. Uh, ambassadors would be exchanged quickly and uh, a long li laundry list of achievements. And he did say, and I think this is, uh, uh, this is annexation is still on the table. He said in Hebrew, uh, direct translation, I'm committed to um, annexation. Uh, an unidentified source close to Netanyahu said that the, uh, the request to temporarily suspend annexation came directly from uh, the from the Trump administration uh, because they would like uh, to advance ties uh, between Israel and Arab countries uh, before going on with their um, uh, peace to, uh, to prosperity, the Trump administration's peace plan. Um, we can go into this maybe later, but I think there's also an, a political anecdote uh, because Netanyahu is being, you know, for failing to the annexation that he promised. But it's interesting also that uh, apparently he did not uh, inform the alternate, the, 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 the Benny Gantz, who's now defense minister, that's supposed to, who's supposed to be a prime minister uh, in just 16 months. Uh, he was not informed of this agreement, nor was uh, Gabi Ishkenazi, the foreign minister, until it was already signed. Um. So uh, I, I agree, Shira Shir makes an excellent point uh, that the way this is being framed by the different sides, uh, I think, you know, tells you, certainly tells you something. Um, and what we saw from Prime Minister Netanyahu today is um, an, interesting, an interesting dance where um, in the press conference he gave, he, he is signaling that annexation is still on the table. He's saying he still wants to, wants to move forward with it, um, that this is just a, a temporary suspension, um, and contrast that to the UAE announcement, which, uh, which not only made it sound more definitive that uh, annexation uh, is, being, uh, is being put in, in deep freeze, but it actually referred to, uh, to further, it's at further annexation. Um, so, you know, the, the language, language here is interesting. Um, but I think that, you know, overall, there, there are two big takeaways for me, um, aside from the fact that uh, this certainly is, um, it is a big deal. It is not, it is obviously not a peace agreement from, uh, by all indications, it is the beginning of a series of negotiations 
toward normalizing ties, you know, certainly very different uh, from the peace agreements that Israel has with Egypt and with Jordan. Uh, it may turn out to look like those, but it's not that yet. Um, but uh, but it's still it's still a big deal. And um, I, as I said, I think there are two big takeaways. One is that. Um, and, and each of these presents a challenge to people on, on different sides of the spectrum. Um, one is that we now see uh, a state that does not have former relations with Israel um, evince a willingness to move down that path without a peace agreement with the Palestinians. That is something that when the Trump administration entered office uh, was the their, their kind of theory of change. And um, you know, people refer to it as outside in. The idea that first you will have peace and normalized relations between Israel and outside states. And as a result of doing so, that will uh, simultaneously put pressure on the Palestinians to come to the table and also give Arab states more leverage of their own with the Palestinians uh, to, to sort of help them along to a deal. Now, we're certainly not at that point yet, um, but many people including me, uh, have been very doubtful of that approach, the notion that Arab states um, would take these steps without having some sort of cover from the Palestinians first. Um, that's not to say that uh, I think that many of us have been very cynical about the relations between Arab states and the Palestinians and uh, the extent to which uh, Arab states genuinely care about the Palestinian situation. But um, but I was certainly skeptical of the outside-in approach. Now, as I said, we are not there yet, but this is a step in that direction. And I think that we're definitely going to see that idea uh, invid- invigorated in, in the months and years to come, uh, particularly if, if President Trump wins re-election. Um, the other big takeaway challenges the other side of the political spectrum, and that has to do with annexation. Ever since the Trump plan was released back in late January, and it included this annexation component that was 30% to the West Bank, the consistent message that we heard from folks on the right, both in Israel and in the United States, was that this is the new realistic two-state solution, that uh, that the Palestinians are going to have to bow to reality and understand that uh, Israel is going to keep um, as much as 30% of the West Bank and that it was going to annex it unilaterally and that the Palestinians, as a result of that, were going to have to come to the table. And the argument actually went one step further. It was the idea not only that the Palestinians were going to have to recognize this reality, but that annexation would actually pave the way for a peace agreement by by forcing the Palestinians to face up to this reality. And what we saw with today's announcement is that annexation did not pave the way to a peace agreement. Annexation does not make it easier. In fact, annexation actually is the red line barrier. Um, Taking it off the table, at least temporarily, uh, was the UAE's price for beginning the process of normalizing ties. And so um, I think that uh, both sides of the political spectrum that have had very different visions for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are going to have to look at this and and, look at some of their core assumptions, because I think it, it challenges it on, on both sides. And obviously, we'll see how the process the process moves forward. Um, you know, this certainly doesn't seem like a, a done deal by any means. Um, but it does set the, the contours going forward um, that, you know, for progress to happen, annexation cannot happen. Um, but that progress 
of some sort is not contingent upon a signed agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. Evan, may I just, uh, I just want to add, I think Michael is absolutely, is absolutely right, but I think it's really interesting, um, this inside-out, outside-in um, approaches, and, and this definitely reaffirms Netanyahu's stance, which he's, he's had for a long time, that um, uh, 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 progress with the Palestinians, Palestinians is not a prerequisite for normalization with the Arab world. Um, however, I do encourage... Uh, those who read Arabic to look at the quotes and the, the t Twitter uh, threads coming from the UAE now in Arabic, in which they say that in this agreement they guaranteed um, that um, the, the guaranteed rights for the Palestinians to establish their state. Uh, this, of course, is absent from the Israel from the Hebrew version and also from the White House version. Um, the Emiratis put themselves in a difficult position, and despite and there's a lot of cynicism behind it because we know that uh, all these back channels between the leaders have existed for a long time. The fact is that the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is still an issue for the people. Um, they are being uh, already uh, uh, looked at as uh, traitors. Of course, the Palestinian reactions, uh, they stabbed us in the back, but also by Turkey and Iran, and those are viewed now as the champions of the, of the, of the Palestinian issue. So I think, I think it is important that um, narrative here does matter. The second thing is that um, when we talk about normalization, we always mention the countries with which Israel uh, does have already peace agreements with, not just normalization, peace agreements. It's uh, Jordan, Egypt, which uh, Michael uh, referred to. But it's important, those are not normal ties. <laughs> That's not over government to government ties. Those are military to military ties. Netanyahu has not met the king in years. The king, in light of the annexation threats, has even refused to meet with, uh, with uh, Benjamin Gantz and with uh, Gabi Ashkenazi. Uh, same goes for the Egyptians. So I think when we're talking about normalizations from the from where we sit, not the policy wongs, but where, from where people in those countries sit, those are not normalized ties. Um, I hope that you know in the future when we talk about normalization, it would be also between the people. Shira, you raised some important points there, and I want to hone in on this theme of the narratives and the ways that the different actors in this situation are framing things. Um, earlier this year, there was a statement that came from the UAE ambassador to the United States, um, Yusuf Al-Otaiba, uh, regarding annexation and how that would square with uh, Israel's pursuit of normalized ties with these Gulf countries how does today's development, how do you reconcile today's developments with what Ambassador Alotaiba said earlier this year and, and the broader policies of these Gulf state countries? I mean, we've, we've, we know that there have been back channels between Israel and Gulf countries for many, many years now. This is not new. It's something that we're even uh, when after the assassination of uh, Mabrouh in uh, Hamas, operator in Dubai, the Dubai police chief said, we know all these Israelis are running around here with foreign passports. It was not a secret. Um, in his op-ed in Hebrew, which was really a breakthrough, Otaiba, Ambassador Otaiba wrote that we want to advance ties. We want to normalize ties. We have mutual interest in this region. Annexation would make it uh, impossible for us, so very hard for us to advance these ties. So in a sense, um, 
an Israeli commitment to suspend annexation um, in return for their implicit promise uh, to advance ties uh, makes a lot of sense. I think the bigger issue is that the threat of annexation has made, um, and including us at Israel Policy Forum, and I'm, I'm very happy that annexation is off the table now because I think it would be da very dangerous for achieving an Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace in the form of a two-state solution. We're not wedded to the state two-state solution just because we like the idea, because it seems to be the least bad of all other options. Um, annexation would have made it impossible um, to achieve. Uh, the problem is that we are all sighing <laughs> this uh, breath of relief that there's no annexation. We're forgetting that we're going back to a status quo, a status quo that has been um, going on for over five decades, decades now um, and is not bringing us anywhere closer to a peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians. Michael, I want to look at the American foreign policy side of this. You spoke about what the ramifications of this would be in the case of a Trump victory in November. Um, there's just been reports coming out now that Jared Kushner claims that there could be another country uh, broaching normalized ties with Israel in the coming days. Um, I, I would assume that would mean probably one of the other Gulf countries, maybe Oman or Bahrain. But if Trump stays in office after November, after January, I should say, can we expect more normalization in the offing? Is this, what kind of trajectory does this set us on in that event? I agree with you. Bahrain, I think, is the, um, the most likely, uh, the most likely next, uh, next domino to fall if, if we do have another one. I think that um, if President Trump wins re-election, you're going to see a bunch of countries make new calculations based on the fact that they're going to have to deal with President Trump for for another four years. Um, and, you know, in that case, you know, you you do see um, you do see Arab states that have that have been pushed by the White House to normalize ties with Israel. And um, they've they've held off and, until today. And, and again, it's, it's not a coincidence that annexation and taking annexation off the table um, has been the price. And uh, again, important to note that um, today's announcement was not an announcement of ties being normalized today. Um, it was the announcement of a process that will presumably be contingent on annexation um, still not happening. Um, if President Trump gets reelected, then, then I think that um, he and his team are going to have a decision to make. And um, it's going to be whether they want to push annexation for annexation's sake or whether they want to take the Trump plan out and um, try to try to give it uh, a second a second wind and a second life. And um, I think that we'll be back to the debate that seems to have taken place within the administration between Jared Kushner and David Friedman back when the plan was released. Is, is annexation the point or is annexation or perhaps a threat of annexation um, a device to get parties back to the table. Uh, now, Jared Kushner today, since this announcement came out, um, said that he hopes that this will convince the Palestinians to uh, come to the table now that annexation is being postponed. And um, I think if President Trump wins re-election, that seems like the likeliest path for the White House to take in terms of how it's going to move forward. Um, 
but obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of balls in the air, um, not only the election here, but, um, what may be yet another election in Israel, um, and seeing how this process with the UAE actually plays out. Because again, uh, if it gets disrupted because there is more talk of annexation, then, um, you know, that will, uh, again, I think, change the parameters of, uh, of what's actually uh, possible and, and, and what's at stake. I want to come back to that issue of the possibility of Israeli elections. But first, I want to go for the kind of flip side of the Trump victory, which is the other possible outcome from the November presidential election. If Joe Biden and Kamala Harris come out of this election uh, victorious, what does this do to their own uh, modes of confronting annexation? Both Vice President Biden and Senator Harris have expressed opposition to West Bank annexation. Uh, but now that you see the possibility, um, the explicit possibility of normalization with some Arab states, um, how do how does that change their calculus? The Biden-Harris campaign came out with a statement today where uh, they applauded normalization, uh, and they also uh, were very clear that um, they remain against annexation and, and in favor of two states, and that they still view annexation um, as something that would be fatal to that process. And I think that what happened today um, sets sets a potential President Biden up um, to pursue that policy. Um, you know, he can uh, he can kind of be happy that this seems to take annexation off the table. Um, as much as Prime Minister Netanyahu repeated uh, over and over today in his uh, in his in his remarks that um, he views annexation as something that he would still like to like to see through. He also did stress that uh, it has to be done in coordination with the U.S., and it's pretty clear that uh, he won't get that from a President Biden. So um, I think that, uh, you know, for obviously today is a, it's certainly a win for President Trump. He gets to take credit for, uh, for a foreign policy breakthrough. Um, but I think it also plays pretty well into what uh, a Biden policy would be, particularly given that, again, it, it elevates annexation um, as this core problem that has to be solved if progress is to move forward. And that's something that the Biden, uh, the Biden campaign has stressed repeatedly. So now turning this to the internal Israeli dynamics here, um, I wanna bring in some audience questions that we've been getting about this as well. Uh, Shira, there's the question of how the settler community is going to respond to this, as well as the pro-annexation right in Israeli politics. Um, we have a question um, from Michael Gelman regarding what the effect on this development, what the effect on the, sorry, the settler community support for Netanyahu will be from this development. Um, we also have a question from Nancy Kaplan on kind of the same topic. Um, and I'll just add there, uh, also looking at the parties to Netanyahu's right, for example, Yamina, who's sort of raison d'etre, in Israeli politics is support for annexation. Yeah, I know I think this is a really important question because already we're hearing the statements from heads of the, lead, uh, the leaders of the settlement movement uh, denouncing the suspension, delaying, uh, what have you, of um, annexation in, in exchange for um, normalizing ties with uh, the UAE. You need to remember, Judea and Samaria is uh, much more important for the settlement movement than uh, 
direct flights to Dubai. This is not something uh, you can't equate the two uh, for them. Um, it's it's really interesting how this all played out because if you remember when uh, Trump unveiled his plan in January in Washington, Netanyahu, who was accompanied by a few of the settler movement settlement leaders, uh, said, "Oh, I'm going back to Israel, and on Sunday I'm going to begin the process of applying sovereignty." He faced opposition that he didn't anticipate from some of the settler movements that were against it because they didn't want annexation done uh, as part of the Peace to Prosperity Plan, which uh, promised uh, some state for the Palestinians, also on the same territory. Now we're seeing something uh, different from the other opposition from the other group of settlers, those who were all pro-annexation, who thought that it might happen, who had their hopes up even after it didn't happen on July 1, which was the set process, uh, anticipating there were rumors that it might happen around the Republican National uh, Committee in late August. Um, they are very disappointed. Clearly, this comes... Uh, this is comes it's within the context of uh, Israel possibly going into fourth elections now. Um, all sides are campaigning, actively campaigning, and there are uh, quite a few anecdotes uh, here on all sides. Um, and Netanyahu is being pushed um, from the right, as you suggested, by uh, from the right from the right, but not uh, necessarily for political reasons. Um, Israel is doing very poorly on the COVID nineteen. Uh, there's 21% uh, unemployment now in the country, um, and it's just out of contender. He has a, a he has Mitchell who is a doer who can take care of the crowd. Uh, in addition to that, Naftali Bennett is saying, "Well, I command uh, the prime minister for bringing this agreement, but he missed." Uh, an opportunity of once in once in a hundred years to apply sovereignty. He didn't annex even one centimeter of territory, and that will change. Um, so I think from Netanyahu's perspective, it's uh, it's a major achievement, no question, and it's a safe, it's a face-saving measure um, means to um, kind of back away from from his uh, promise to annex territory. Of course especially if he says that this was a, the request of President Trump. Um, but uh, it's not good for him politically. I think it's also not very good for uh, the, the blue-white for Benny Gantz and uh, Ashkenazi, who were totally marginalized from this. As I said before, they didn't even know about it. One of their main achievements now when they're, when they're going out campaigning is to say that they had uh, prevented annexation. So this is something they're actually they're, uh, they're not uh, receiving any dividends for this agreement so in discussing this issue we can't ignore the impact for the palestinians although it seems the palestinians have been ignored throughout this process we have a question from yusuf bashir about what the impact of this development will be on the Palestinian Authority. Shira and Michael, do you have any uh, take on that? So um, I, I'm, 
I'll be surprised if uh, the Palestinian Authority is uh, is happy <laughs> with with today's development for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, obviously the Palestinian Authority is the party that is most interested in in kind of um, holding the line on this idea that peace with Israel, um, peace between Israel and other countries can happen or should happen without a deal with the Palestinians first. Obviously, um, the PLO wants to be uh, the entity that um, that uh, reaches an accord with Israel before, before other countries do, uh, as the Palestinians don't want to be left behind. And so um, you know, that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect of it is that um, the UAE uh, has very strong ties with uh, Mohammed Dahlan. Um, it's uh, it's where it's where he lives, and um, he is possibly Abbas's uh, main rival um, outside of uh, outside of Hamas. Um, and I can't imagine that President Abbas is uh, is terribly pleased that. Um, that any type of stronger ties between Israel and the UAE are almost certainly going to redound to, to Dachlan's benefit and um, probably give Dachlan uh, more of um, more influence within within the West Bank and Gaza. Um, so you know, one of these is kind of a macro issue, and one of them is a more of a micro Palestinian political issue. Um, but uh, but I can't imagine this is being welcomed by Ramallah. Um, in fact, um, you, you're exactly right, Michael, um, uh, because of uh, Dahlan uh, being perceived by the Palestinian authorities interfering, uh, the UAE, because of Dahlan interfering in their internal affairs, uh, ties between the Palestinian Authority and the UAE have been really bad since already 2011. Um, so it's not like the UAE had thought about how this would be taken in Ramallah. Uh, Abbas uh, convened an urgent meeting, which is still taking place. They already said that at the end of the meeting, there will be a very harsh condemnation of this affair. Um, you've he heard Palestinian officials already, Fatah officials, of course, Hamas also uh, calling this a stab in the back. Um, from what I understand, because I was trying to find out, the suspension of annexation, something, you know, a, a declaration of that sort could lead to renewed coordination between Israelis and Palestinian security coordination or civil coordination. I want to remind everyone that there are no ties at all. We're talking about uh, inability to coordinate the transfer, transfer of COVID-19 test kits, even, not to mention other referrals for hospitals. Uh, this is a this is a very serious issue. What I heard is that the Palestinians now are way too upset to even think about it, and it does not uh, it does not promote any um, further stability. Um, the, the 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 idea is now still on. We're waiting until November to see what the results of the U.S. elections are, and uh, we'll take it from there. But they are very 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 unhappy about this. And just to just to kind of stress, um, you know, the the Palestinians. Most most potent uh, most potent vehicle for opposing Israeli policy um, really has been this idea that there should not be normalization with Israel um, absent a deal with the Palestinians. That you know because um, you know there has not up until this point um, been kind of a um, a wide move on the international community to, for instance, recognize the state of Palestine. Um, there certainly has not been appetite from the international community, nor do I think there will be. Um, or do I think there should be, 
to to boycott uh, to boycott Israel. And so this idea of anti-normalization has been the Palestinians' most uh, most potent tactic. Um, and if this represents a real break in their ability uh, to maintain that, um, then there's going to be very little that the Palestinians have left in terms of their ability to try to counter uh, counter Israeli actions. So you know this this really is um, this really is a big deal for them, not just in terms of perception, but in terms of the actual kind of tactics they have used to try and put some pressure on uh, on the Israeli government. So I want to remind our attendees that you can continue to submit questions through the Q&A box or through the chat. We're going to address some of these audience questions. Now we have a question from Alexander Leopold from our IPF Atid Young Professionals Network uh, asking if either of you think that Prime Minister Netanyahu ever really intended to proceed with some kind of formal annexation to begin with. Hey, Alex. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, um, I kind of go back and forth on this. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's career has been about kind of status quo, um, ma- maintaining status quo, uh, particularly in this, particularly in this area, but um, not just in this area. You know, he's um, he's been probably the most reticent Israeli prime minister in history when it comes to uh, armed conflicts, for instance. Um, he's, he's generally a kind of risk averse conservative status quo kind of guy. Um, so there's one school of thought that says he never actually wanted to do this. And, you know, today's announcement provides him a very convenient, um, ladder from which he can climb down, uh, that he can use to climb down from the the branch that he got too far out on. That's certainly possible. Um, it's also possible that he did want to do it and didn't intend, and did intend to do it, which is why, you know, he pushed it so often. He's the one who created the July first date. Um, you know, there are reports that behind the scenes he's been uh, he's been extremely angry with the White House for not not giving him an, an, un, an unambiguous green light. Um, but that looking at looking at the polls at the moment, where the latest poll from uh, either yesterday or two days ago has Likud down to twenty seven seats, um, I think he understands that the path back toward more popularity isn't through annexation, which another recent Israeli poll showed only 4% of Israelis rank as, as their most important issue at the moment. Um, it's coming up with kind of a broader achievement that he can use to say, hey, you know, even if you think I've mismanaged coronavirus, um, I am still able to, to bring forth historic achievements on the world stage. So this is the kind of move that I think certainly benefits him politically in a broader sense. And, you know, he may have looked around and decided that um, if trading annexation, um, at least temporarily, um, means getting this bigger political win, particularly if he's going to elections, then it's worth the trade-off at the moment. And, you know, he may still have opportunities down the road for annexation. Frankly, as I said, I go back and forth. Um, You know, sometimes I think he really does want to do this, uh, you know, for legacy purposes. And sometimes I think that, um, you know, it's all been a cynical political tactic and that he's looking for an out. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question and I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that question. Um, but at the moment, you know, whatever the answer to the question is, um, you know, he seems to, he wants to have it both ways, you know? So while annexation is now off the table, at least for the foreseeable future, he is still today talking about wanting to implement annexation. Um, so 
until until he ever until he actually goes through with it um, or ever definitively takes it off the table, and I don't think that that latter thing is ever going to happen. We'll never we'll never know for sure. Yeah, I I you know I agree with Michael, and I I don't pretend to know what goes on in Netanyahu's head. I think for a long time he did not think annexation was a good idea, um, the unilateral annexation. Um, I know he also said it in his own voice to different U.S. leaders. Um, but he did try to promote it, I think, very seriously. And I started believing that he sees this as an opportunity to change the paradigm from uh, the 67 borders. Um, however, I think, and this is everyone that you know analyzes Netanyahu's uh, tenure in the last 10 years, um, he always likes to keep options. And there, there are always options uh, going on. And you see this now with uh, maybe election, trying to find effect other parties, some different government without elections, or uh, to just continue with this, uh, uh, with this government. So also, I think on the annexation, it's exactly as Michael said. He's not uh, giving up on annexation. In Hebrew, he's saying he's very much committed to it, uh, even though I just heard, saw another um, tweet from the UAE that they are demanding a complete com a commitment for complete, um, uh, you know, backing away from annexation, which, of course, Israel, uh, Netanyahu is not going to do. Um, so... It's actually a really smart uh, tactic, I think, on Israel, on, on his perspective, because there's a, there's a major, it's a major achievement that I think we should all be really happy about. And it's not just the Trump administration, right? There's a bipartisan support uh, in Washington for normalizing ties between Israel and, uh, and Arab countries. And this is really great. Um, and at the same time, the costs uh, for Israel, there's no cost for Israel. Um, it is not necessarily such a popular achievement on the right. Um, so he's going to pay a political price for it. I think that is important to mention. Um, and just and just quickly on, you know, Shira mentioned bipartisan support in Washington for normalization of ties with Israel. Um, just this week, uh, Democrat Cory Booker and Republican Rob Portman uh, introduced uh, a bill in the Senate um, requiring the State Department to provide uh, reporting on countries that uh, punish their citizens for engaging with Israel. So, you know, the idea of, of countries uh, normalizing relations with Israel, um, 100%, you know, is going to be the policy of any any administration, Republican or Democrat. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly if, if this does go forward, um, no question it's something that will be supported by both parties in, in the U.S., um, but as Shira points out, already you know a, a couple of hours down down the road, um, we now have um, hardening statements, <laughs> both from the Israelis and from the UAE, um, over this annexation issue. And um, you know, as I said before, we'll see if it actually happens. But in some ways, you know, this is now almost uh, over the course of today, starting to look like past episodes um, where you know Prime Minister Netanyahu announces. Uh, annexation of the Jordan Valley and then, you know, announces, well, only after the election um, or, you know, he says July 1st is the date for annexation and then July 1st comes around and doesn't happen. Um, I think there's a long way to go before we actually see uh, these normalized ties. And uh, I'm pretty sure there are going to be some more twists and turns uh, in the weeks ahead. Michael and Shira, you both spoke about the 
impact of this development on Netanyahu's own political credibility and on internal Israeli politics. I want to return to the issue of internal Palestinian politics and how this is going to impact Palestinians' perception of their own leaders. Uh, Isaac Hassan from IPF Atid asks, if we can go into greater detail into the issue of Mohammed Dahlan, how is this going to impact his own credibility with the Palestinian public, given his association with the Arab Emirates? Sure, do you want? Um, you know, Dahlan is not a popular figure in terms of uh, uh, the Palestinian public. He has some support in Gaza because he's from Gaza, but it's not like Dahlan is, you know, the Marwan Bouti, the leader that can uh, that the Palestinian pu uh, public supports. Um, so I don't think that would necessarily change anything in the support for him. We did when there was talk before uh, COVID-19, before there was the threat of annexation, before the Trump uh, administration released their plan, there was a talk about Palestinian elections. In this Palestinian election, we did hear of some sort of, uh, there were talks between Dahlan and Barghouti to join forces where Dahlan would bring the financial means supported by the UAE and Barghouti would bring the popularity. Whether this can happen now uh, when it seems like it's been years, <laughs> so much has happened since then, uh, whether this can happen um, and whether we're going to see elections anytime soon, um, I think it's really far-fetched. Um, but the trends that we've identified before, the Palestinian Authority is very, very weak. Um, this will probably even weaken it even further because um, it's it's another failure. It's another failure of, of its strategy. As Michael mentioned before, the Palestinians have many um, uh, means or there's, there's not much incentives for the Israelis to go for peace with the Palestinians. This was a, a very strong one and basically having this taken away from them, the strategy has not delivered anything. Um, so we're seeing with the Palestinian Authority that is a playing game of chicken, essentially, right? It has stopped all coordination with Israel, coordination with the United States, um, security coordination and civilian coordination um, uh, in ways that I would, I would dare to say are even morally flawed, uh, not providing referrals for Palestinians who need to get special treatments in Israeli hospitals. Those, those, these things have already led to the death of Palestinians. Um, so I just don't see this as a development that uh, brings any good to, let's say, stability of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, what it does to Hamas probably at the immediate level, probably strengthens the support for Hamas, but the Palestinian public is really uh, desperate and uh, um, of of the the two the two types of leaderships. Um, yeah, on, on the question of Dahlan and internal Palestinian internal Palestinian politics, the Palestinian Authority is deeply unpopular, and most Palestinians view it as. Um, most Palestinians view it as corrupt, but, but perhaps even more damagingly as, as ineffectual, as um, not being able to stop 
the Israelis really from from doing anything that they want and not having done anything uh, to really um, hasten hasten the uh, the inevitability or or even the probability uh, of a Palestinian state. Um, and this is another example, right? Um, that the the PA had had no ability and perhaps didn't even know this was coming uh, to prevent the UAE from starting a process of normalizing ties with Israel. Um, and, you know, even more so, it seems here that uh, the party, you know, if, if, if you were a Palestinian who was worried about annexation, uh, you know, now the UAE is demonstrating that it perhaps has more ability to stop that than the PA does. Um, you know, we've seen with the Qataris in Gaza, for instance, where um, the Qataris now send $30 million uh, in cash to, to Gaza every month, and it gives them um, it gives them credibility and influence in Gaza and, and with Hamas. If, if this process goes forward, uh, you can see a situation in the future in a post-Abbas period where you have a number of Palestinian leaders and politicians who are competing with each other to be the next Palestinian leader, uh, or at least to be in the mix. You can see a situation where the UAE... Um, which uh, certainly favors Dahlan, um is able to, for instance, uh, wrangle some concessions from Israel on on something in the West Bank, and then Dahlan gets to come in and sort of tra- take credit for it. And you know, it's the kind of thing that may enable him to to build up a base. Um, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't. I don't think this in any way puts Dahlan as the front runner to succeed Abbas. Um, you know, he's got uh, he's got lots of lots of hurdles. Um, not least of which is the fact that he hasn't been there in uh, in years. Um, but it does kind of give him a step in the door in terms of being able to influence events uh, more in the West Bank. Um, and, you know, it just, uh, it just, it just puts him, puts him in the mix. There's been a lot of confusion and debate over what the substance of the arrangement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates actually means. Some people have thrown around the term normalization. Some people erroneously, I would say, have thrown out the term peace deal, peace agreement. So uh, what does this actually mean? We have a, we have a question from Laurel Grauer from IPF Atid asking what sorts of deliverables we would actually expect if this arrangement and negotiations move forward between Israel and the UAE. So uh, in terms of deliverables, um, you know, it can be lots of things. And, and as you point out, um, normalization does not mean peace. Um, and, uh, you know, we, there was reporting earlier today about uh, statements from the Emiratis saying that if an embassy gets established, uh, it won't be in Jerusalem until there's a peace agreement with the Palestinians. So, of course, that leaves open the idea that normalization means establishing an embassy uh, in Tel Aviv. Um, you know, presumably it will mean uh, the ability greater ability to travel back and forth between the two countries. Uh, I'm certain it will mean uh, greater greater business ties, um, probably greater cooperation on all sorts of issues. We, you know, we did see an announcement a few weeks ago about cooperation, not between governments, but between private Israeli and uh, Emirati companies uh, on, on coronavirus issues. So it probably means a lot more of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, mostly I would guess in the realm of, uh, of commerce, business, and, and perhaps even tourism. Um, and at the end of it, it very well may mean, may mean an embassy. But I think that Shira's, Shira's earlier point from, you know, already uh, half an hour ago 
um, about the Egyptian and Jordanian peace treaties is an important one, right? Those, for the most part, are military to military treaties. They certainly haven't involved normalization between um, the populations uh, of Israel and Egypt or Israel and Jordan. Um, in fact, I think one can make a pretty strong argument that um, that uh, Israeli popularity in the Arab world is actually lowest in those two countries uh, than it is in other countries where Israel does not have peace treaties or normalized ties. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen what this means. Of course, Jordan and Egypt also, you know, historically were, were actual enemies of Israel and, you know, uh, Israel fought multiple wars with each. And so, and it's certainly not, it's not a, it's not a perfectly analogous situation by any means. Um, but, you know, normalization can, can, I think, run a, run a very, a very large gamut. I mean, a variety of things and um, we'll see as this unfolds. But uh, as I said, my guess is that it will mainly involve um, commercial, commercial ties. Yeah. I, I, you know, Oh, I agree with you, Mark. I think there's all, there are already commercial ties that are happening just with Israeli businesses, Israeli tech companies that are listed um, in other countries. Um, they operate through other subsidiaries uh, so that they can work. So now maybe this cover will not be needed. There have been uh, visas granted to Israeli business persons for a long, long, long time. Um, I guess this agreement could develop into something very meaningful and, or... Uh, or not at this moment, and it's again, it goes back to the earlier comments about depending who you ask. Uh, the statements coming from the UAE spoke about starting to talk about a roadmap toward establishing ties. Uh, Netanyahu promised um, that um, there would be embassies uh, exchanging ambassadors. Um, investments that would uh, be very, um, reading his statement, beneficial to the state of Israel. He didn't speak about uh, reciprocal Israeli investments in the UAE. Uh, of course, tourism, uh, commercial, uh, direct flights between Tel Aviv and Abu Dhabi. And he said that the United Arab Emirates will invest in Israel a very substantial investments in um, developing a COVID-19 uh, vaccine in the next year. So this is what um, Israel is promising, and obviously that would be a very good development. I find it hard to believe that this we're going to see this uh, happening in the very near future. So we're just running up to the top of the hour, so we're going to address one last question. We have a question from Abner Goldstein, bringing this back to the U.S. foreign policy angle. If Trump is not reelected, what do you expect the administration to do, the Trump administration to do in the intervening months between the November election and the inauguration of the new administration with regard to the annexation question? That's a really good question. Um, yesterday, and in fact, I think I actually did say this uh, to, a, to a different group yesterday, um, I would have told you that if President Trump loses the election, um, he will almost certainly uh, give a full green light to annexation during the transition. I think that today's announcement certainly complicates that. And I think that um, it actually gives the UAE the power to determine whether that happens. Because um, if President Trump loses in November and he says to the Israelis, from my point of view, you have a full green light to pursue annexation, and the UAE says to the Israeli government, if you do that, then any 
normalization process will be over and, you know, a, a Biden transition team uh, says to the Israeli government, if you do that, then, you know, you're going to uh, you're going to start off on a very bad footing with us. Um, then I think it, it, it may take the wind out of the sails of any Trump administration effort to push annexation through. So um, I think this certainly this certainly complicates that that calculus. And it also makes it more difficult uh, for President Trump to um, after you know touting today's announcement as a as a as a great foreign policy uh, policy win for the White House and for his vision, um, I think it also will be a little difficult to then necessarily turn around in November or December and say uh, you know what um, forget all that um, let's go ahead with annexation and forget about forget about this normalization agreement. Sure, anything to add on that? No, I agree with Michael. But of course, it's hard to know what's going to happen. But it's, it's a very good question. But I agree with Michael's answer. Okay. Well, with that, thank you both, Michael and Shira, for sharing your expertise and your insights on such short notice. And thank you to everyone for attending. Just a few quick, important announcements. You'll want to stay around for a recording of this program will be posted to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. And if it's your first time listening to the podcast, I encourage you to check out our other episodes. This week, we also have an interview with former Shin Bet director Ami Ayalon and a recording of our recent briefing with Ksenia Svetlova. Uh, we also have a great opportunity for young professionals. Our IPF Atid Bronfman Conveners application is up now for the new 2020 to 2021 cohort. Um, and the application is available at ipf.li forward slash summit. And lastly, if you want to read Israel Policy Forum's statement on the issue of UAE Israel normalization or find any other resources on annexation, then you can access all of that on our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org. And with that, thank you and have a good day. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.